0: Everybody, welcome to Not Safe for Wonks. It's been another very wild, very chaotic week in the world of politics, pop culture, assorted bullshit. Uh, but the thing that I'm most excited for, the thing I've been waiting to do all week, is talk to Leia. Uh, Leia, are you, are you like here right now? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm all clear. Ready to go. Well, obviously, like the, the last time we talked, like you left us in incredible suspense about your foot fetish but I don't want to get into that. I want to, I want to wait. No, we'll, we'll save that for another time. Um, because Mm -hmm. you did not want to talk about it yet, but later episode for sure. I do want to talk about this Gravel thing. That's something you cannot put Uh, off. Yeah. Yeah. Came to the, to the last episode late because Mm -hmm. you were meeting with the Gravels. So it's been some time. Yeah. So what happened with you and, and Mike, the Senator? Oh, so, um, essentially
1: what happened is, um, the, the teens have been having a real impact on Gravel. Like at the start of the campaign, they were much to the left of Gravel. But slowly he's been reading some shit and slowly he's been digesting various posts. And now Gravel is solidly to the left of both
0: of the teens. I thought you were going to say he's been reading like theory, like he's been reading fucking Karl Marx. He's been reading posts.
2: <laughs> no, one, no one reads theory.
1: He's read tens of thousands of posts. He's reading posts right fucking now.
0: Okay. All right. Fine. So he's been, he's been reading a lot of Twitter. Yeah. He's been reading
1: some posts and he's come to, um, you know, he, he can't, he, you know, he, he's invested every, all of this campaign into with the teens, with the Gravel teens, right. And so like he can't pivot his campaign more leftward when he still has this liberal baggage of the, of those two guys on board. So uh, w- w- what he's trying to do is he's, he's pivoting to a 2024 run in the meantime, he's he's building a militia in the Alaskan wilderness. Okay, so
0: what? <laughs> who's gonna join? A, first of all, who's gonna join? Like militias usually are, like in Wyoming or Idaho, like it's flat ground, like it's just regular temperate weather. Alaska seems very cold for a wilderness to start a militia.
1: Yeah. You know, he he's banking on the he's banking on the gold deposits. He read somewhere about the gold rush and he thinks that they can the militia can make some money off
0: of it. Oh, God. So. All right. So, number one, we've we've learned that posts are theory. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number two, Gravel 2020 is over. Gravel 2024 (laughs) is potentially starting right now. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's like a you know how Trump filed for the the 2020 campaign immediately as he was inaugurated. <laughs>
0: it's 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 sort of the same thing. And number three, I I guess only the strong will survive in the new Gravel resistance. Fucking Alaska, and not even like in Anchorage. Like, is there going to be plumbing or heat out there? Are you guys still working on that or? Uh, yeah, we're kind of working for on some it. time, is what I heard. Oh, if I ask you about heat in the Alaskan, Alaskan wilderness, and you say you're working on it, that's a fucking problem. <laughs> you can't contact me until it's worked on. <laughs> <laughs> Holy no, shit.
1: Don't worry, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the, I'm still, I'm probably going to be the militia's liaison over in the, over in the continental states. So your job is not
0: fully locked down yet.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah probably and I, i'm probably going to be as well the the 2024 manager uh manager of the campaign but gravel has to they're they're going out into the wilderness right now and they're they're building the shit i think their one radio broke. So they haven't been in contact with me for a few days i hope they're alive oh god
2: this is this is sounding kind of grim gravel gravel i hope you're still alive my my guy
1: I mean, I I I've seen the man. He is like a he's like a modern Arnold Schwarzenegger. He can <laughs> he can survive anything. <laughs> One time, the Gravel teams tried to tried to throw a frying pan at him for being too conservative, and he he didn't even flinch. Did he not flinch and
0: catch it, or did he not flinch and it hit him?
1: Yeah, it hit him, and he didn't flinch.
3: He just absorbed the frying pan.
2: It just became a part of him. Well, Gravel is out. 2020 but there are still a lot of candidates that are in and we're gonna talk about a lot of them today this is not safe for wonks i'm kennedy i'm brandon play Rose. and we have a a guest host today lao welcome hey
3: everyone uh, my name's lao and um, i'm on the team of uh orbit gangsters we yeah. built the website orbgang.love. Um, currently I'm trying to figure out a schedule for a Twitch channel on, um, twitch.tv slash but basically, um, the way that I got into this Marion Williamson and 2020 election cycle is basically the memes, right? I was on Facebook and I saw some posts about orbs and I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And then so I made a couple of orb memes, and then I started reading more and more about Marion Williamson, and it kind of got me really excited about um, this election cycle. And um, eventually, um, I knew that there were a couple of great uh, content creators on Facebook, so I just ended up creating a group chat, and um, eventually we just started thinking about building a website, and out of that came orbgang.love. And it's only been, uh, this whole orb gang stuff has just been, you know, accelerating at an unthinkable pace. I mean, we, we basically mm-hmm. trolled Washington Post saying that we have a leader with 13 chaos magicians. Like, <laughs> we're on the New York Times, we're on NBC.
1: Yeah, and uh, we talked about this on the stream, but um, I don't, I don't think we talked about it on an episode yet. Kennedy, you were, you were on NBC.
2: Yes, uh, Lau and I were both featured in the NBC article discussing Marianne Williamson memes, which was pretty surreal, to
0: be honest. Well, apparently, it's really easy to get on NBC News. I'll just let anybody hop on there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fine.
2: Seems that way. Uh, they let some disreputable characters like us on, so. <laughs> Yeah.
1: (laughs) You know, if you're if you're not here (laughs) listening, the bar is basically zero. So, you know,
2: Uh, Lau, I was curious, though, um, is this your first time kind of being involved heavily in a political campaign in some way? Or do you have a political history before this?
3: Sure. Yeah. So when I was at um, the university, I was going to and um, I'll just say that I attended a fairly liberal a university in California. That's as far as I want to go. <laughs> um, during that time, the um, the Wall Street protests were happening, right? And Occupy mm. Wall Street was going on. And so I was still kind of figuring out my political identity. I definitely knew that I was some sort of leftist, but I wasn't sure exactly where my positions were. Um, but, you know, I, I was sort of involved in that, kind of at the peripheral just kind of observing what was going on. Um, And then Trump got elected and it was just such a deafening and disappointing time. And then, you know, all of this stuff with Marin Williamson and even Bernie Sanders a little bit kind of reinvigorated my um, participation in politics.
0: What do you what do you like about her that makes makes her your number one candidate right now? Or is she your number one candidate?
3: Yeah, so she definitely is. And Bernie Sanders would be my second Definitely. It's either one of the two for me.
0: I think we're all probably
2: in agreement there.
3: Yeah, definitely. But what's so interesting for me is this sort of, uh, this callback to the sort of religious left that you saw in the 1960s, especially during the, you know, the civil rights era. Um, and if you know a little bit about what was going on at the time, a lot of Southern Baptist, uh, church leaders were involved in the, uh, the march to Washington. So there was definitely this very real and very deep, uh, spiritual dimension to politics that was happening during this time of so much, um, so much, uh, social upheaval. Right. And, right. You know, comparing this time to now, it's such a stark difference and it kind of speaks to the sort of secularization that we've seen, um, since the 1960s. Mm. I mean, you can, t- you can, you can, Reframe um, the way in which the right has really appropriated these religious um, aspects, right? Even though you might not consider them to be truly religious, they still have the foothold into what it means to be a Christian or what it means to be religious or spiritual. And that's something that I think the left has lost, right? The left is entering a period where it has to decide for itself. How much of that spiritual message they want to carry, and I think that Marion Willemson is the candidate for that, right? And that's the reason why she um, her message um, resonates with so many people, even though they're, they might not necessarily be religious, right? So that's why Marion Willemson is my number one.
2: Can I ask about your own spirituality? Like, what's what's that look like for you?
3: So for a long time, um, so I I studied philosophy in undergrad, I have a bachelor's in it. And, um, you know, I was sort of that, I guess, like, very logical, oriented, you know, person who really wanted to look for the evidence, really wanted to be rational all the time. And then beginning of last year, well, also in college, I started getting um, exposed to the works of um, Søren Kierkegaard, who's a Danish Christian theologian, um, he's, uh, he's sort of dubbed the father of, of existentialism. And he was a really, really interesting writer to me um, because, again, like for most of my life, I wasn't very religiously involved. And he had a sort of message that really spoke to the way that we are as human beings and the way that we participate in the world and what it means to really exist in the world. And so that mm-hmm. was something that kind of awakened in me. Um, so I would say that, you know, I had a very a spiritual awakening of like late last year. And so it's really hard to talk about spiritual stuff in a, in a sort of in the way that we normally talk. But really, I think what I'm trying to do right now is synthesize Christ- Christian theology with the Taoism. So, you know, the yin, yin yang sign. That's sort of representative of Taoist beliefs, mm. and I think the the more that I read the Bible and the more that I read the Tao Te Ching, which is like the principal text of Taoism, the more that I the more similarities I see, and it, it's almost like they're the same thing, just from two different time periods and cultures. And so that's what I'm trying to do spiritually is to just um, understand how Taoism and Christianity are related, and sort of re-emphasize the existential content of Christianity because it's one thing to go to church, right and mm-hmm. go to church every Sunday and read the Bible, but it's another thing to really understand what it means to be like someone like Jesus, right? As far as I know, no one no Christian who calls themselves Christians reminds me of Jesus. And so that's the litmus test, I feel about what it means to be exactly that, right? Yeah. So I definitely think um, for the left, there is this possibility to reinvigorate and redefine itself in a sort of spiritual and religious dimension.
2: That's really interesting, you know, and and this is something I might like to actually do like a whole kind of episode on at some point, but I do feel personally that um, I, I kind of used to be more in the camp of like we'll have a a a more democratic society when we remove all religion from it kind of thinking mm-hmm. and and I've come to sort of believe that that's a unrealistic belief and I also think it's it's actually a little bit imperialist because mm. it tends to when i hear uh, the left talk about like sort of like a necessity of atheism or things like that um, it always tends to be based in this framework of Western religion and really just ignoring all the indigenous religions that have been sort of pushed to the wayside over time. Right. And things like that. Um, and also, I'm glad you brought up Kierkegaard as well, because I think that's a very interesting subject that I'd like to talk about more sometime. But just to briefly say one one tiny thing about him, like that is a really interesting philosopher to talk about, just in terms of somebody who obviously spent a lot of time thinking about religion and stayed religious.
3: Yeah. Well, what I can say is that the time that we live in right now is is um sort of the time that Kierkegaard found himself in, which is this sort of really objective and detached way of understanding Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. So you read some texts, you learn about Jesus, and then you're a Christian. And for Kierkegaard, it wasn't that wasn't the true message of Christianity. What it meant to be a Christian is to live existentially in the world and participate in the world. So for Kierkegaard, I think, like, um, Kierkegaard was really responding to Hegel, right? And Hegel was the, uh, like, the probably biggest philosopher of the time um, at his time, right? And so, um, you know, Marx, or at least early Marx was very... Um, dependent on this Hegelian mode of thinking, and a lot of different, um, what you would call left Hegelians, who were people who critiqued Hegel, were trying to show why Hegel, Hegel was wrong. And Kierkegaard was one of those people who really wanted to respond to Hegel, and his sort of way of thinking about Christianity in this objective, systematized, detached way. Because for Kierkegaard, Christianity wasn't a matter of, wasn't a matter of rationality even, or objective reality. It was, it was very much a subjective, a subjective point of view that only a subject can appropriate.
2: Well, Lau, I can tell from that incredible analysis that you're going to be a wonderful guest to have on
0: today. I want to step back before you go forward into other topics, um, because I missed, I missed a few things. And you were talking about not meeting many Christians mm-hmm. who resemble Christ to you. So I wanted to ask: Is there anyone in in uh, your personal or public life that does resemble Christ to you? And if so, or if not, uh, how can a person, in your opinion, become more like Christ, or, or even in history, living living or dead?
3: I think there's a couple of people. It's hard to say, right? Because it's hard to, um, I guess, talk about. Let me let me think about it a little bit. <laughs>
1: and you know to give uh kind of to give uh, allow more time to think uh, sort of re- returning to a point that we've kind of left but i still want to give my take on is ken's take on like um democratizing society if all religion was abolished i'm definitely out of my sort of edgy atheist phase of oh you know we need to get rid of all religion i i'm sort of more in the camp of like i'm you know i'm an anarchist i want to Remove unjust hierarchy and religious hierarchy is one of those I think organized religion is really damaging to society and I'm, you know, spirituality, individual religion, that's all cool with me. It's just sort of the organized nature that most religions have taken on nowadays is really kind of damaging and, and, and antithetical to the stated goals of those religions and that's
3: what kierkegaard was trying to um do in his time was sort of really attack Christendom and the church for distorting the views and the message of Christianity and that's exactly the kind mm-hmm. of time that we're living now
2: mm-hmm. right that kind of gets into Brandon's point in a way about like who who does resemble Christ right now because like that's the thing is that Ideally, right, the church, if it was doing its sort of job, should be training someone to resemble Christ. But we don't see that as actually reflected not just in the people that are produced, but even just in the process. Uh, because just going you know just going to church, just doing these routines, that's not really necessarily absorbing the full message of, of a religion of any religion. To just uh, just uh, just sort of attend and be there.
3: Honestly speaking, yeah. probably Marianne Willenson comes, you know, c- kind of resembles Christ in a way. I mean, j- just to be clear, right? That you know, being Christ is almost an impossible thing, right? It takes a lot, it takes a, a lot of willpower. and
0: That's more humanly <laughs> attainable. What can I do to be more Christ-like?
2: Yeah, I want to turn I want to turn bread into into wine. How do I do that? If we're going to get deep into this topic, I think we should point out what Marianne herself kind of believes here, Uh, because I've been reading Return to Love and and getting familiar with some of her other uh, like kind of older stuff. As far as I can kind of best interpret it, and, and this is pretty close to like the actual verbiage that she's using as well. Uh, it's It's basically like the way that she looks at it is God is love. is This is the simplest way to view these concepts, basically, is that God is love. We are Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is our ability to change mm-hmm. ourselves and others. And like that's basically like the sort of humanist lens that she fundamentally frames religion through. And so, to that extent, like there is nothing to do to become more Christ-like, in a funny way.
3: Well, I think one, one, one important point about Marion Williamson's message too is this: i this idea or concept of miracles, and what would that mean for us living in a secular society? Right? Like, can we really turn, uh, you know, blood into water? Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but it it kind of shows. This is um, in philosophy, I guess, what you would call. An epistemological problem right this Mm. is a problem that deals with how do we know things about the world and um and what kind of knowledge do we have access to right and maybe for some of us here who are more on the secular side of things you know we really base our knowledge on this sort of empirical scientific um, method right we collect evidence we we make, you know, so we make a hypothesis, we collect evidence, we see if our hypothesis was true at the end, right, after some experiments are done, and then we can make a determination about whether or not that thing is true, right? In a more spiritual, I guess, um, dimension, right, if we're talking about what it means to be a spiritual being and what it, what a miracle actually is, one way to frame it is that, yes, of course, science and empirical knowledge is very important, Um, And it has created a lot of um, technology for us to, to better our own needs. But a miracle is precisely the point. A miracle is something that we cannot absolutely expect. Because we have to understand that although we have this great capacity for reason and knowledge, we can send probes out to space, right? We have to understand that we are still limited in our um, physical configuration, right? You know, I, I I can only move so much, I can only walk so far, even with a spaceship, I can only travel so far, I still need to eat food, right?
2: And even like metaphysically, like, I can only inhabit one body.
3: And I can only think of certain things, right? So... Um, one 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 example that I do like to give is um, the set of natural numbers. So, does everyone know what the natural set of the set of natural numbers is?
0: I would bet that our audience does not. So, you tell them.
3: So, the set of natural numbers is just basically one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, blah, 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 blah all the way up until infinity, right? Mm-hmm. We call that the set of natural numbers, and so we know that the set of natural numbers is infinite, right? If you give me a number, a natural number, like 100,000 billion, go- Google, blah, 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 I can tell you that that number plus one is going to be higher than that. And it goes on to infinity, right? So we know that the set of natural numbers is infinite, but we ourselves cannot think of all numbers, all natural numbers, right? That's impossible because our minds are limited, right? We can represent it um, so that the symbol that we use to represent the set of natural numbers is N. So I can say in my head, I can think, "Oh yeah, the, the set of natural numbers is one, two, three, four, five, blah, 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 blah." But N. I cannot simultaneously, altogether, think about all of the natural numbers inside of my little tiny brain. Right. Right. So how is it possible that we know that something's infinite, but we cannot? Think of the infinite itself. that's one way to phrase this sort of problem between or the distinction between um, spiritual knowledge and this sort of knowledge that we're sort of used to, right this empirical based, even mathematical knowledge in a sense, right mm-hmm. because mathematical knowledge is is in some way just kind of like manipulating symbols, right? But we can't actually we can't actually think about all all the numbers in the world in our in our little brains. Of course not. Even a computer can't do that, right?
0: Yeah.
3: A computer is going to run out of memory.
0: Part of what we do in terms of um, science or in terms of even us being regular people who are trying to come to conclusions is all of us, and I guess this ties into politics, are limited by our current knowledge. We're limited by our current processing power. Uh, We're limited by our current Mm -hmm. experiences. So obviously we all are aware that there are questions that we don't know the answers to. Anybody who engages with you like about politics in like an honest way, uh, and you talk to them for an hour, uh, they'll come and s- you'll have a question for them and they'll say that they don't know. And the fact that, that question is so that answer is so rare, uh, really tells you how little people understand about politics. And really, politics is, and I guess it's one of the quantum one of the things about our show is it's this weird quantum thing. It's a weird sociological, Mm. it's how groups make decisions about how we should treat each other. But I do think that our understanding takes into account uh, our limited knowledge. Like we have limited questions that we can ask and our our answers are limited
2: too. I think it's important to uh, talk about like how we frame all of this stuff. And like, just the fact that like, you can have an answer that basically it solves true, but it doesn't necessarily give you all the information. Just to like keep using a little bit of math terminology, and and especially I wanted to talk just to get into a little bit more like math and philosophy stuff. Lao mentioned infinity, and even infinity is one of these concepts that like a lot of times we sort of take for granted as like a thing that we sort of can understand or look at in one way. Um, and instead, though, like there are these other ways to look at infinity and, and uh, I, th- I think his name is Franz uh, Georg Cantor. I'm not sure was a German mathematician. That was one of the first people to propose that you can kind of have these different frameworks or definitions of infinity that are all theoretically correct. And so, and, and that was controversial when he brought it up. Um, he wasn't, he wasn't just accepted at face value for this claim, even though mathematically it holds true, and it was eventually proven to hold true. And, and so to basically just for our audience's sake, to, to really briefly explain what Cantor believed and, and was well, proven true about infinity. It, basically, you could have a line that's infinitely long, and you could also have like a, a plane that's infinitely big. And those two things are not equivalent, even though they're both infinite. That's the basic explanation.
3: Maybe maybe one way to frame it, too, is um, kind of briefly describe Taoism. So in the Tao Te Ching, which is sort of the principal text of um, Taoist philosophy, uh, the first chapter starts with this very paradoxical phrase, and it goes, the way that can be spoken of is not the constant way. So it's paradoxical.
0: I want to I give you my enormy version of what you were going to say before you continue.
3: <laughs> yeah sure thing the
0: entire the entire idea theory in both political theory and scientific theory is determining like a way to act on something you're not completely sure is true but you have confidence is true based on your perspective
3: yeah i think i think that's that's actually a good way to put it right mm-hmm. um because we are you were bringing up a point that you know because we're limited um, in our ways in a, and in our sort of physical reality um, we don't necessarily have access to the truth the capital of t truth what we have instead are these interpretations of this thing that we call truth right and this kind of sort of goes back to Nietzsche as well so mm-hmm. um, Nietzsche I believe the way he put it was you know there's there's not really truth there's only interpretations and I, and I do want to Go back to your point about um, what it means to be a democracy, right? Because being in a genuine democracy, I believe it has to deal with the fact that we have to understand what we ourselves don't know and what other people don't know, right? Because knowledge is not just the truth, right? Yes. Knowledge has to deal with with non-knowledge. You know, those things can't be really separated. When we want mm-hmm. to find out truth, we have to first go through what what is untruth. And that's that's I guess that's one um one important theme in Taoism is this idea that we have these dualities, right? So light and darkness, positive and negative, male, female, right? If you look at the yin yang symbol, it's not just just one side's white and one side's black, right? So inside Inside of those two halves, there's a little, a little bit of the black and the white, and there's a little bit of the white and the black, right? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of representative of the way in which we use language. The mistake that we make is thinking that these words are absolute. So when we talk about truth, we're just talking about truth. Absolute truth with a capital T. What Taoism is trying to say is that's not really the case. What, what it really is, is that when we talk about truth, there's a little bit of untruth in it. And when we talk about untruth, we're also talking about the truth. Those things cannot be separated. That's what the duality is. So, you can yeah. definitely mislead yourself into thinking, this is the truth. This is what it is. And nothing else is true. Yes. That you're, then you're making a claim, according to Taoist, that... What you're, what you have, is the constant way. So remember that first uh, line in the Tao Te Ching: the way that can be spoken of is not the constant way. Even right now, so this is the paradox, right? Even when I'm talking about <laughs> the way, I'm not talking about the constant way. <laughs> and and, right. and and that's something that I do like about Taoism. But you know, it, it really goes back to this, you know, idea of democracy and this idea that. What does it mean to be equal? If so, so much of our knowledge and so much of our skills and physical capacities are so different and so unique to each other, to ourselves, you know what are the possibilities of equality and establishing a genuine democracy? And that's a huge problem that we're having right now, right? And so what I think that Marianne Williamson is trying to do, part of what she's trying to do is sort of reintroduce, this um, spiritual side that has been neglected on the left for since the 1960s, right?
2: I just really have to address some of this because you've touched on so many interesting things. First of all, I just want to say like what you what you said about like capital T truth versus like sort of perceptive truth. And, and that's all we have. And like you're saying, like even now, like, you know, it's like we're talking, we are bringing our own imperfect perception to talk about imperfect perception right now. <laughs> like, yeah. That's, that's the best anyone can possibly do. Mm -hmm. Right. But uh, I wanted to bring this around a little bit to sort of like political and uh, psychological sort of like realities and and sort of like things that people are looking into today. I'm struggling to find the name of this journalist right now. If I'm able to find it, I'll definitely put it in the show notes. But there was a journalist a few years back who worked on some projects, sort of talking to people about, their eyewitness accounts of traumatic events and doing it like really quickly after it happened, but like interviewing a lot of different people and then like kind of pointing out these differences. And in particular, focusing on on trauma because uh, according to everything we know, this stuff imprints the hardest. Like if you should remember anything accurately, it's something that you witnessed up close and personal that was traumatic. So things like when people had committed suicide and these people had had witnessed it and things like that, And they found that even in these situations that were sort of idealistic in terms of you would think that their accounts should match up pretty closely, the accounts would still vary quite a lot. And not because of like deception or like some kind of, you know, like it's just because of people's inability to perfectly perceive everything and keep all information in like a completely accurate form. And so like we're all just doing our best. And the minute, the minute that you kind of think that your best is better than most people, you've probably deluded yourself. And that's kind of both important for, in terms of like having a healthy political process. And also, like, I think that's kind of at the core in a lot of ways of what the, the Tao Te Ching is about, or at least that was a lot of my interpretation of it.
3: Yeah. The, I mean, there is this sort of uh, this very linguistic approach that you can take with Taoism, right? You can you can think about it in terms of words, but you can also think about it in terms of ourselves, right? And, you know, um, so maybe one contrast that I would talk about is this sort of idea of the individual versus the collective and what that means. Because we did touch about, touch briefly about how groups participate in political processes and how individuals might do it, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, what does it mean to count yourself in a group, right? Yeah, Because there are you know, individually and even collectively, we feel so disconnected from the political process. I mean, what was it like 50% of US voters who could have voted did not vote at all in the 2016 election? That's like half of everyone, half of the United States like not voting.
2: It was staggeringly high. Although if we're going to talk about that could have voted, we of course kind of need to talk a little bit about electoral manipulation or oh absolutely mention it because that is a huge huge topic that i still think is not quite getting enough like accurate press
3: absolutely yeah
2: uh but you know but you know it's all tied together these material realities and these sort of like philosophical axioms and truths and and ways of looking at things these these all fit together
3: (laughs) yeah yeah and and that's one thing to appreciate about Marion Williamson too is this sort of integrative approach that she has. So she says that if we want to talk about healthcare, we also have to talk about food policies and environmental policies and how these how these things are interrelated.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
3: you know, people do make fun of Marion Williamson for having this sort of um very idealistic driven way of interpreting physical illnesses, right? So I don't want to go too much into about the sort of smear campaign the media industrial complex is doing to her right now. (laughs) But one very enlightening example that she gives is when we think about cancer as this sort of physical phenomenon, right? We think that you just kind of have the genetics, right? And maybe your environment sort of affects you in a way and then you get cancer, right? Mm -hmm. We never think about cancer and how maybe a consciousness can cause cancer, right? And for a lot of people, especially if you're very logically and rationally oriented, oriented, you might say, well, that's just ridiculous. How can consciousness cause cancer, right? And the example that Marion Williamson gives is that, you know, someone had to have poisoned the river. Someone had to have put chemicals in it. Someone, you know, there's this whole chain of actions that takes place.
1: Not a lack of individual consciousness, but of societal consciousness, mm-hmm. is what she gets at. I think.
2: Yeah, it's definitely not. It's definitely not you who has cancer. It's it, it's your fault for being unconscious. It is like the fact that all, these things happened. That was a lack of consciousness. What caused that person to dump these chemicals in the river? You know, because if, if you're quote unquote conscious in the way that I think Marianne uses the word from everything I've ever seen or read or heard from her, then, you know, like you wouldn't dump chemicals in the river. And that's kind of the point.
3: Yeah, basically. Right. And so it's like this question about, you know, in the past, you know, and then this goes to, to the idea of reparations as a form of, um, Mm. taking responsibility. Right. What undergirds this American society is this very tragic and very deeply painful history of slavery, you know? And, and those things still reverberate through our consciousness and also through our material reality itself, right? Mm-hmm. We, we still have to deal with the fact that, you know, the alt-right and these different groups are grappling with that racist history, Right. Mm-hmm. these are these are just symptoms of that deep and traumatic experience that slaves and masters alike have experienced, right yes so this was a very intentional and conscious process this this transatlantic slave trade was a conscious thing it has it had its own consciousness in insofar as there were people involved with it and there were human beings involved with it and it and it involved the exploitation of one group of human beings over another, right?
2: And in particular, like you know, there was an ideology created to go along with this, you know, to support exactly it. Uh, is is kind of I think that's what you're getting at anyway. Is like yeah. to some extent is that yeah, you know, it's like it wasn't just it wasn't just like uh, slavery was happening and everyone was just talking about it in these dry economic terms, which still would have been horrible in its own way, but there was this added layer of um, you know, this is why we're going to keep doing this and why it's allowed is because these people are inferior for these reasons. And you know, all of this really nasty stuff that they, they wove deeply into the entire concept. And so, yeah, to an, it, like it, it it was its own, however you want to put it, its own consciousness, its own ideology, its own religion, so to speak uh, sort of like, you know had its grasp on the way people looked at things.
3: And we're definitely dealing with that sort of racist power, right? Yes, still today. And I bet I can I can bet you right now that if you read any sort of fascist or racist manifesto, you would find its roots in the Atlantic slave trade. Like yes. I bet I bet that that the masters and the uh, colonizers from the transatlantic slave trade had almost the exact same ideas as people um, who are racist have today, right? This, Absolutely. this very general idea of um, that one group is superior over another, that still exists. And that idea still has a root in our material history, right?
2: Yes. And that's, That's kind of why the reparations subject is important, I think. You know, I wasn't, I'll, I'll go ahead and say it right now. I was the kind of person that honestly, probably a year ago, I wasn't necessarily sold on reparations. Like I was still unsure about it. Like, I would say like three or four years ago, I was pretty much against the concept. Not because I thought that somehow people didn't deserve it, but because I was just like, well, I think it's too politically divisive. That, which mm. is kind of like a, a something I hear a lot of wonks and certain types of people. Civility wonking fucking sucks dude. Yeah I, so I used to kind of be there and then I got to this point where I didn't believe that anymore but I still didn't really know what to believe exactly and Marianne's framing really kind of put it into perspective and, and one of the things that I've come to realize through reading about reparations particularly through Marianne is that what's so important about Calling it reparations, framing it this way, is that healing that you're kind of like getting at here, where like there are these sort of, you know, as Marianne would put it, psychic wounds in our country. (laughs) And, you know, however you want to put that, you know, cultural, historical wounds, whatever, these things affect people. And reparations as a concept, it allows people to feel like they're being heard in a different way that something that was was sort of wrong is being righted.
3: Right. Yeah, that's a very important point. And, it's, and it goes back to, you know, even this idea of an individual is so controversial, right? Like, um, just to bring up Kierkegaard for a little bit, one of his pseudonyms, um, uh, Anticlimacus, who, re- who wrote uh, The Sickness Unto Death, which is a reference to the story of Lazarus in the Bible, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, right? Yes. Um, (laughs) This is going to be very, very confusing for um, your viewers and you, and even myself, but (laughs) the way that he defines spirit, right? Anticlimachus, which is a Kierkegaard pseudonym in this book. The way that he defines spirit is spirit is the self, but what is the self? The self is a relation that relates itself to itself in the relation, right? So, we, what I'm trying to get at is we have this sort of face value idea of what the self or the individual is. And going back to this sort of Taoist um, sort of duality concept, right? We can't really understand what an individual is unless we understand what it means to be a collective, mm-hmm. Right. So when people try to say, you know, I'm an individual, and then you find out that their individualism is based on on the society in which they live, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Kind of throws into question, like, what do you really mean by you're an individual? So remember, there's, there's a very real and very deep history of slavery, and it is related to us, to each and every one of us in some way. We don't know exactly mm-hmm. how it's related to each other. But we are the inheritors of that history, maybe as individuals, maybe as a collective, maybe as a group, but nonetheless, we still have to deal with this um, history, right? So again, like, and it really goes back to this idea of what it means to be a democracy. Yes. And the great American experiment is that you can be whoever you want to be, and still feel like you're an American citizen. And so how is it, how is it possible to be part of something and remain an individual, right? That's, a, that's another question in philosophy is basically, how does the part relate to the whole?
2: Yeah, I think we're looking at a lot of that right now in our politics because both the Democratic and the Republican Party are a little bit splintered right now. We have these, you know, sort of left and right distinctions that a lot of people have sort of h- held to as like pretty simple and easy to define and sort of black and white you're either a Democrat or a Republican was sort of like a lot of, you know, what I kind of heard from everybody growing up. Uh, it doesn't feel so true anymore. You know, we have justice Democrats and and moderate Democrats fighting. We have libertarians leaving the GOP and, you know, declaring themselves independents. Yeah, it's we're kind of in a time where, yeah, I don't think we we necessarily know what any of these sort of holes are.
3: Right. Um. Going back to the to the spiritual point a little bit, right? And so um, I, I am going to talk about Jesus a little bit. Is that okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit of a Jesus freak, but... <laughs>
0: You're allowed to talk about Jesus as much as you want.
3: All right, great. I'll pose this question, right? What does Jesus do when he forgives a sinner, right? And this does um, relate to reparations as well.
0: Well, I'll, I'll just give my own personal interpretation, and you can agree with it or challenge it as you want. Jesus erases the sin. He says, "Go now and sin no more." And the wound that the person held, and you know, when Jesus healed, when Jesus healed someone, he would say, "Go now and sin no more." Um, and generally, in, in parables, when Jesus is healing someone, he is not just healing a psychic wound. He is healing something that's either is or is symbolized by an actual physical defect. It, isn't it isn't even always something that happens to the person. Uh, I remember a story in the Bible of Jesus healing a legionnaire's son. I'm it's been a little while since I've gone through that uh, part of the gospel. So I could be wrong. But if I remember it, Jesus goes to a a legionnaire's son and and the son is sick and uh, the legionnaire goes to Jesus and he says, forgive me. And it's kind of interesting how we think about restorative justice, because you could imagine that legionnaire saying, well, I don't know what the kid did. I, you know, uh, I am I I shouldn't be the one that, that is in this position, but we, we see that, at least in the Bible, sin is often passed down to people who might not have been the original responsible party for the sin. Um, when Jesus curses a fig tree, like the, the, the fruits of the fig tree didn't commit the same sin as the tree, but Jesus curses the entire tree, and that entire tree suffers the consequences of that sin. So at least in a biblical perspective, and you can go into the Old Testament and see God's anger visited onto bloodlines. Um, sin is not a is not something that exists in the present. It's something too. If we want to dig into Eastern religion, is karma, not in like the sense of you do a bad thing and something bad happens to you, but in the sense of your actions simply have natural consequences, and those consequences go a long time into the future. So with that that picture Mm -hmm. of sin, when Jesus forgives sin, he erases it. And and this kind of goes back to us talking about how it's hard to be Christ-like, right? Because (laughs) it's hard for us to—I mean, usually when we talk about forgiveness, we say forgive, but don't forget. But Jesus is kind of the opposite of how we think of sin. Jesus, when he vanishes a sin, it's not, well, you're on probation from your sin. I've never seen a, you know, somebody with a really superior understanding of the Bible could tell me, oh, Jesus meant you're on probation from your sin, but I've never heard that. When Jesus says sin, he says, go now and sin no more, and the sin is done. That's the entire point of Christianity.
3: Exactly. I, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head, right? And and so I just want to sort of uh, supplement your point with, you know, with the idea that sin hides, right, or Love is is the thing that hides the sin. So, um, the past, there's a there's a point in the Bible where it says, you know, love hides a multitude of sins, right? And so, what we're we're dealing what we're dealing with right now is the possibility of a politics of love rather than a politics of fear, which Marion Willemson has um, really tried to express, right? You know, it's so interesting when you know during the second debate, right? Marion Williamson poses, why don't we just get rid of college debt? You know how many jobs it would create? You know, this would mean that um, all of these college educated people can start their own businesses, blah, 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 blah. And everyone was applauding. That literally, in a sense, you know, is the forgiveness of debt (laughs) and sin, right?
2: We all know Jesus wasn't a big debt fan either. For the
0: record.
3: right, yeah. He, he, whipped, he whipped the shit out of those fingers <laughs> in the temple. Like, he didn't give a fuck.
0: When we talk about being Christ like, it's the only time yeah. in the gospel that Jesus is genuinely angry at someone. Like, even when he rebukes Peter, he does not get pissed off at Peter, he rebukes him. The only time in the yeah. Bible that he's pissed off is people making money off of his shit.
3: Yeah. It's like, and, why, why the fuck are you using my dad's name like that, motherfucker? And he gets out his whip it, and starts
2: to be clear too, about just how like sort of uh uh forgive forgiveness oriented jesus is in the bible too like when when the romans come to arrest him uh his followers aren't ready to just let this happen a lot of people don't remember this little factoid but this is one of my favorite bible facts and and simon peter draws his sword and like starts cutting one of these dudes up that's that's here to arrest jesus and jesus is like no 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 i'm gonna go it's fine like stop it but, like, his followers are ready to throw down and, and like, fight. And uh, it's Jesus who says, no, no, I'm going to allow myself to be arrested, uh, which is, like, a very important, I mean, it's a very powerful thing for him to do in terms of, like, the message that it's sending. And, again, this all ties back to, like, the forgiveness of sin. Um, yeah, he could just, like, fight these people, go on the run, find somewhere else to live, probably, whatever. But the point is, is that he forgives these people, he forgives them even in advance of what they're about to do.
3: And that's that's why Christianity is so so difficult to really achieve, right? Trying to be like Jesus really means putting yourself in such a vulnerable vulnerable state of being that being innocent would lead you to death in this world.
2: But again, you could still pull out the whip at some point and just Oh,
3: definitely. flay,
2: flay some moneylenders because like that's also that's still within the realm of Christ
0: yeah Jesus did not hang around and just let people do shit and it's funny that like uh, when, when I guess this was the stage one criti- criticism of Williamson he started talking about love and I was like oh you're just going to make the heart emoji at the, at the boot that's coming for your face it's like no <laughs> dude no. like there's no like obviously there are pacifists in the world And actually, I know I know a couple of pacifists and maybe they can come on and and fucking dunk on us later. I'm very non-denominational. But uh, 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 basing your ideology around love is not necessarily like you just let people do shit. Like, um, right. I mean, obviously, like if you've ever had a relative that has been an addict, you like can love that relative. That's an addict. But eventually you have to say no to them. You have to set boundaries with them. Um, you have to f- fucking leave them to like be in a fucking painful situation. I guess we're going back into Christianity now. <laughs> but yeah, you can you can love somebody without like abetting them at every possible turn. There is there's a fence to love sometimes.
2: Yeah. I mean Marion says this herself a lot. She says sometimes love says no is like one of her big kind of stumping points about how she justifies this position. And like, yeah, that's the thing. Like, sometimes you have to lovingly prevent a bad thing from happening. It's not, it's not loving to watch. Like, for instance, somebody abusing a child and just stand there and go, Oh, well, I'm sorry, this is happening. I love you both. Right. That's not actually being loving. In that situation the loving thing to do is to try to step in and protect that child in some in some fashion and that's like that's like the core of what Marianne means when she talks about love that pe- a lot of people aren't quite seeing yet
0: okay let me ask you guys something while you're while you're here and you're in a mood to think about love Kennedy you have talked to me privately about it being important to find other people in public life who share that same philosophy and way of thinking so that, you know, in the event that Marianne Williamson is elected president or in the event that she's not, there is still that mode of thinking that is still something that exists in politics. Mm-hmm. How, how do we know when we're not being loving? Because I think that if you were to talk to like the angriest people on Twitter, they would say, I am, I, I, I'm yelling, I'm screaming, I may be being destructive or I'm tearing a person down. But, like, I am being the most loving that a person can be. And I also think that if you got, like, a member of the Proud Boys and you got them onto our show, they would probably tell you the same thing. Uh, people do a lot of shit that, like, seems to be obviously not loving on its face. But anybody can convince themselves that they are acting out of love while they commit any action. So, yeah, in, in a terms of, I guess, self-criticism or whatever how do we know when we're not being loving anymore? And it's funny that we say that because we like, we have a show where we shit on people all the time. So I get like, like literally our show is, is basically like the entire co- comedy portion of our show. is just being rude to people. And these happen to be some of the richest and most well off people in the world. And I don't think they really care uh, what us in the peanut gallery have to say, but just in terms of your, of you answering to your own morality or whatever, uh, and obviously, you know you guys can both answer. what What's the self-critical aspect of when when are we not being loving? What isn't love?
3: I think I, I think I, I might have a an answer for that. What does it mean for Jesus to come let that he's there only for the sinners, right? And I think if you pay attention real closely to who comes to Jesus, it's the sinners who know that they are sinners, right? They know that they've done something wrong. They come to Jesus for forgiveness, right? It's not people who are ignorant of the fact that they have done something wrong in their lives. It's those people who know in their heart that they did something wrong and that that is where the possibility of genuine forgiveness happens. You can't just half-ass, you know, oh, I did something wrong. Can you please forgive me? Right? You really do have to believe in some way that your sin and your guilt is really related to your spiritual self. Otherwise, there's not even the chance of forgiveness in that way, right? Hmm. Okay, so from Jesus' perspective, of course he forgives everybody, even if they don't know what they're doing. There still remains a problem of what happens after Jesus dies and what we have to do. Um, I, I guess if you're a Christian, what, what people would have to do in this post- post Jesus world right so he dies on the cross and he says um forgive them father for they do not know what they do right i think that really speaks to this to people not really knowing the extent of their despair over the actions they've done in the past right um and that can also apply to the collective history um, sorry, the collective history that we're dealing with um, with slavery and racism. So that goes back to the um, to the problem about how do we know if we how do we know if we're loving or not, mm. right? And I think one way to to ask is um, is to doubt, <laughs> really to doubt in some way that you're really loving or not.
0: I, I actually have a question. I have a, a thought about this that's similar to misogyny. Because uh, I'm talking to—I talk to guys about, like, misogyny once in a while. It's not like something you sit back over a beer. Let's talk about and talk some masculinity. But um, <laughs> I I say, like, I, I personally determine whether or not a person is misogynist based on how they speak about their political enemies. Like, I can tell that you have fucked up thoughts about women based on the way you talk about Sarah Palin. Mm. Like, you can, like, be, like, A, B, C, D <laughs> about, like, fucking— Marianne Williamson, Kamala Harris, Michelle Obama, but like really the, the, the really gross shit comes out when we're talking about uh, who's that person from the fucking British tabloids, Katie Hopkins. Like I let you riff about Katie Hopkins for five minutes and then I just see like the volume of what comes out. I say, okay, that person has some issues because there's now a social construct that allows that to come out. And um, when it comes to uh, our our policies of, of love, one of the things that we don't have in politics, have you ever heard of a person really being forgiven in politics? Mm, yeah. Even in your own personal, like, political... Like, if you go to a DSA meeting or whatever... The phrase like go now and sin no more has never been said oh, yeah. in any left organization ever. Like Let me tell you how
3: bad leftists are at forgiving, okay? <laughs>
0: <laughs> but but there's a reason like we can we can call leftists spiritually deficient or not, because obviously this happens on the right too. Um we can call people spiritually deficient, but really it's because we are more interested in the end outcome of our policy and what it's going to do to the masses of people. And the people around us more than like we care about any individual person like a person that does i mean we talked about fucking bernie like if he would if he'd been on the plane with jeffrey epstein we take him up and we throw him out of the plane we don't need him anymore because like he he's a tool for a political end but when we're like really operating in love in like a really deep way we start thinking about the inner lives of people and we start thinking about their psychology and their loved ones and the pain that they're feeling. Mm. And we can like come to a, a place where we at least think about like each individual life as uniquely meaningful to us rather great. than a tool to achieve like our, our goal. And maybe the goal is more important, but if we're, if, if, if we're really thinking about love, we should, I don't have a really great answer for it, but we should at least think about what that person's inner life is is yeah so
2: i have a different take a little bit actually
0: go wild go wild
2: um because i i when i get into these conversations personally i tend to fall back on uh aristotle and aristotle believed that there was no real fundamental kind of like difference between good and evil that like there he kind of differed from a lot of his peers in this way because a lot of philosophers at the time painted everything in this portrait of like, you know, evil is this sort of absolute thing that sort of exists in opposition to good. And Aristotle was one of the first philosophers to say, no, I don't really necessarily think that's the case. And what he proposed instead was that, you know, basically everybody kind of thinks that they're doing good. And this is what I believe. Like, I I believe that even, uh, I mean, Certainly a lot of there are people that are are so psychologically deranged and sick that, you know, they just know that they're being bad and they're doing a bad thing. But I I think the majority of people, even people who are doing something horrible, such as like being like an Alabama Republican politician right now or something in their in their mind, they think that they are accomplishing something good that they like they've started from a seed that seemed good to them. And so where I come from in terms of how do we be more loving, I mean, how do we be more good could be sort of the same question, right? And and so to that end, I think that I sort of agree with this sort of Aristotelian take that the, the further the more that you sort of have to justify or that 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 good is sort of complicated, that there are layers added on top to explain the good, probably the further you've gone from it. That, like, you should be able to just be like, yeah, I'm feeding the homeless today or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, when you have to couch it in, I'm feeding some homeless people today, but only the ones that it can prove that they were looking for a job in the last week and blah, blah. Like, that's not, you're not being loving anymore, um, in my opinion.
0: And eventually you get to the point where you've, you've bathed in the blood of your enemies. Um, you've, you've driven away women. You've heard the lamentation of the children. You sit on the throne made of bones. And then you have to look in the mirror and you still say, well, you know, I did the right thing and it was for the sake of a better world. And they'll remember me in a good way. But you've gotten very far away from how you started. Yes.
3: Um, one point to make is... Um... Uh, to go back a little bit about forgiveness, right, and what what it what is its role in the relationship between a sinner and a forgiver, right? So when Jesus forgives people, your sinners, what he's doing in a sense is abolishing the difference between him and the sinner, right? Mm. Um, so Brandon, you talked you talked about um, you talked about how What Jesus does is he erases sin. He erases the debt of the past, right? And what that means is to create the possibility for that sinner to um, re-engage and reconnect with the good or love or whatever you want to call it, right? And that's a question of equality, right? What you're doing or what Jesus was doing when he forgives a sinner is he's making that sinner equal to himself through love. That's what the 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 real spiritual message of forgiveness is, right is the possibility that you and the other person that whoever's getting for whoever is being forgiven, you can stand on equal foot footing
0: hmm. let me let me tell you some 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 serious truth behind your back uh me I laughed at you when you rolled out orb gang dot love i so was like, <laughs> this is fucking corny I was like he's he's a fucking yeah. cornball. I was like he's fine to have his fucking domain name but like it's fucking ridiculous. After listening to you talk for an hour, orbgang.love is your fucking thing and you're fucking entitled to it. Man. <laughs> that's fucking some that's some real shit you dropped there, man. Yeah. That shit sticks to your ribs.
3: I mean, th- this this whole this whole thing that we're trying to do deal with as human beings is is this difficulty of uh, of loving, right? At its core, mm. I think. Um, and I mean, just imagine, right? Like, come on, there were crusades. Let's not be honest. Let's be serious. Right.
0: There were crusades.
3: There are priests right now, molesting little children that Mm -hmm. speaks to the, to the distance between them and what love should be. Right. And it is a very difficult thing to achieve. We we've been trying to do this thing of loving each other for millennia and, in this particular moment, we really have to understand ourselves as a generation of lovers, and yes. you know that that's essentially what the spiritual message is. I think, um, and we've gone in so far, and 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 we're led so astray that you know it is really difficult to think about how can we love in this world, and how can we how can we stop climate change in ten years or eighteen months or whatever it is now, right? But it really does, so this is why I really pre- appreciate Kierkegaard, for instance, is because so many of us are in this sort of trap, this existential despair of not knowing what to do with our lives. And definitely, I felt it. I'm sure everyone, mostly everyone has felt this way, whether or not they're conscious of it. It's this sort of existential question, like, what do I do with my life? That's why I appreciate Kierkegaard a lot. And that's why I sort of had this spiritual awakening. You know, I, I think at this point in my life, I am really am in the service of other people, rather than myself. I don't know, I kind of experience ego death in a way <laughs> reading Taoism uh, <laughs> and Christianity. But, you know, mm. this is a real serious problem. Yeah, This isn't just woo-woo, hippie, bullshit, new age, you know, that people and the media are sort of kind of, you know...
2: Well, here's the thing. Like, uh, the, here's how I can immediately, a lot of times, get people to relate to this and in like a non-kind of woo manner. I- I've personally had this belief for some time and i think that anyone can look at themselves and look at the people around them and immediately see that this is pretty true at least here in america nobody follows a law that they do not see the value in that's very true right like when you're on the freeway speeding it's because you don't think that the speed limit is that important like, you know, it just it's not a value, you know? It's not something that you personally...
3: That's the difference between um, abolishing the law and fulfilling the law, right? So that's what Jesus was trying to do. He says, I didn't come here to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And so what the law is that he's trying to fulfill is the law of love, right? So not only... It's not enough to just write a bunch of laws in a book or something, or in the Constitution, you really do have to, in a way, be your own law.
2: Yes. And this is why I even as like a a relative skeptic, I'm not an atheist, sort of found myself drawn to Marianne's message is because I get it that we need to change the way that we think and we talk about politics and about each other, not just change the law. Right. Well, with that, I think
0: this Listen. Been... Yeah, we've done a whole we've done a whole episode. Man. <laughs> An incredible episode. We came on. Let, let me tell the listeners something. We came on here, and the plan was we were going to sit here and bullshit about the debates. Like we gave you show notes that were all debate based, and obviously we streamed the, uh, the debate stuff together over the week.
1: I, I was ready to spit some. I was ready to spit some, <laughs> some t-
0: Yeah, <laughs> but really, like, fuck the debates. Like this was infinitely more especially because the debates were last week anyway
1: even though i didn't have anything to stay stay here it was a it was still a really really interesting conversation i'm glad i was here for it Leia, you have anything you have one sentence on joe biden <laughs> <laughs> oh <laughs> <laughs> a
2: little bit hold on oh
1: uh, thank thank you my man oh, oh let me 10, just give 10. this
2: Hold I want to give a debate take that actually ties this all together. I saw a number of of people in the media talking about how uninspiring the majority of the conversation at the Democratic debate was. And I think that they were right and that this episode is basically at the core of why Marianne is the inspiration candidate,
0: period. Anyway, Lau, you want to squeeze in like your plug? By all means, your social media, whatever you got going. Yeah.
3: Um, so, of course, we have uh, love. We're still trying to um, look for artists um, to volunteer with the uh, site theme. We actually were developing an origin story, so maybe I can talk about that a little bit later uh, or in another podcast episode.
1: Sure. Yeah, we're, we're definitely, we're definitely going to have you on again, because this is great. Mm-hmm. This is a great conversation we had.
0: We're like a fledgling show, but we have like more interesting people and shit that have been drawn to us, yeah. like just over the last few weeks than like, we know what to do. So like two episodes might not be enough, like, <laughs> but by all means, whenever you have free time, like, yeah, definitely yeah. come on the show and come talk, talk some shit.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, man. And, um, you can, uh. I'll try to make a more consistent schedule for streaming and making memes on the twitch.tv slash orb gang Twitch channel. You can also follow me on twitter.com slash orb gang love. And yeah, I'm actually, you know, really glad I I came onto the show. We're glad we had you on. I'm glad to uh, have talked about Jesus and Taoism and Christianity because, you know, that spiritual stuff is, is really important. And and so I'm thankful for the opportunity to talk about that stuff. I'll definitely come in future episodes. But thank you again.
2: We'll put some of that, that plug information in the show notes. And uh, thank you, everyone. This has been Not Safe for Wonks. And really quick, before we do the final outro, I need to do a really quick plug. Um, our, our show theme was made by this wonderful individual who goes by the name Commodore 1983. We have not credited him oh God. up to this We point. haven't plugged
0: him he hasn't even gotten mad he's just like i'm glad that the on part of the show he's a good friend of mine um but i really want to plug
2: him he makes great music and we have not said a word about him so far so i wanted to give him the actual on air plug today commodore 1983 you can find him on
0: soundcloud his music is great and he deserves that that big love we were struggling the entire week trying to figure out like theme music um we were going through all this public domain shit we were panicking there was, like, nothing that was, like, really great quality and really catchy and really memorable and came through, like, fucking Batman Save the Day. Yes. Something we all agreed on, like, on first listen. And he has tons of songs that are, like, equally that good. There are, like, literally yes. five different songs from him we could have used. He's dope.
1: V- Vaporwave rocks, and I want to do an oh, episode yeah. about it And someday. also,
0: we got to mandatorily say this. Please go on the iTunes. Please leave us a rating. Please leave us a review. Please. You guys have already gone above and beyond. Um, It feels we feel kind of embarrassed even asking at this point, but we got to keep doing it. Time keeps on ticking into the future. Um, And we're going to continue to make the show like hopefully like better and better, more good shit like this uh, so that it's worth your 45 seconds or whatever it takes for you to tell people that you like the show. Yes. And with that, thank you so much. I'm Kennedy. Lay Rose. I'm Brandon. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. See ya.